Thanks for tuning in to Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. Our guest today is Shuvi Srivastava. Shuvi is a product of IIT Delhi, having done production and industrial engineering. She is now part of the Lightspeed India Partners team, focusing on internet first and consumer fintech investing. Shuvi has recently been listed in the Forbes 30 under 30 list. She describes herself as a founder who didn't get to the product market fit and therefore understands the psychological price of entrepreneurship. This perhaps is the craft which she brings to venture. And that is why in the world of early stage investing, she calls herself part therapist, part coach, and someone who's always on the side of those who chase purpose and break protocol. Her name Shuvi itself means open-mindedness, non-judgmental and unorthodox. A great speciality, rather skill about Shuvi is her knack and dogged determinedness in opening doors and getting access to people who matter. And she could do this in unique ways, for example, extorting domain names and trading them for a coffee. At some point before a few years, she described this quality as a gift of a new and improved level of shamelessness. Shuvi. A very warm welcome to the Small Big Wins podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Harsh. Thank you so much for being there. So, Shuvi, it's inspirational to read your entrepreneurial journey, which has been very unique. And from there, coming to the world of investing, finding your way over here. So what I would like to start is by asking you that in a world where tangible has always mattered more than the intangible, where transaction is more important than anything else, where physics is more important than chemistry. How do you bring balance and sustenance between your investing responsibilities and being on the side of those who chase purpose? That's a, that's a very interesting question and it almost makes you want to debate capitalism at one level. Uh, but I personally don't necessarily think that chasing purpose and chasing uh, growth or large outcomes from a company perspective are necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, in fact, I think some of the best founders are those who have a deep sense of purpose for, for what they do. We uh, you know, often refer to them as mission-driven or missionary founders. Um, and I think given that entrepreneurship is so, you know, just carries so much existential risk every day, um, that if you don't have an inherent sense of purpose driving you, it becomes very, very hard to stay committed to that goal. So I almost feel that to create large outcomes from a more commercial perspective, you need to have that personal resonance with, with the goal that you're chasing. And you need to have that, that deep sense of fulfillment that you get by just being a part of that journey every day versus restricting it to attaining certain milestones. Uh, so I personally feel that they're both pretty intertwined. Right. But uh, where I came from is that in everyday business, mm -hmm. we find generally lots of people and companies who are focusing on shareholder value. Mm -hmm. That is what their mantra is. That yeah. is what they are, they are preaching about. So how do you reconcile? I understand that you say yeah. that they are not mutually exclusive, but then yeah. why is it so forgotten? Why is it so difficult to grasp by people? I think that's also an interesting distinction between early stage companies and large companies. Right. Uh, you know, when you're a smaller team, I think even up to 20, 30 people, um, it's so much easier for people to have this collective and shared sense of purpose in what they do. Uh, 
I think that's what becomes harder to scale as as teams become larger and companies become larger. And once you hit, you know, thousand plus people, it's almost impossible that you'll have everyone in the team um, with the same end vision and with the same uh, sense of fulfillment uh, that, for example, the founders derive from, you know, being on that journey. So I feel uh, that's where, you know, some of this sense of meaning and purpose gets lost in the larger team. Um, and, and in some sense, uh, you know, that's, that's really the opportunity that startups thrive on, right? Incumbents don't innovate because some of these issues start playing out. And that's what creates opportunities for younger, uh, smaller teams and younger companies uh, to, to spot that um, opportunity or the lack of innovation and build something that the larger companies are not incentivized to build anymore. So I think that's almost in some sense natural progression in the, in the world of uh, commerce and capitalism, which happens. Yes, well taken. Um, and, and I think that every startup aspires to be large and make it big. And uh, every large corporate also was once probably a startup. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so what would you really like uh, leaders of large corporates to be like? Mm. And maybe I can take some inspiration from companies that have sustained market leadership. Absolutely, please. That would be great to hear. Uh, um, So if I look at Apple or Microsoft, for example, and Microsoft again has been through its own journey. uh, And I think the last five, seven years that uh, Satya Nadella has been at the helm have been uh, great in terms of, you know, just the resurgence of Microsoft as a a, a large and um, meaningful entity in, in the world of tech. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of blog posts around this, but I think Microsoft also went through a period of getting too entangled in bureaucracy, just difficult decision-making, long and tedious decision-making. And what typically then happens is that your best people leave you. Exactly. Uh, they get frustrated by just how long it takes to get anything approved. And I, I think that the new leadership that Microsoft got on spotted some of these inefficiencies that had crept into the system and solved for it. And you see this newness in terms of even the acquisitions they've made over the last five years. Uh, LinkedIn has been one. GitHub has been uh, a more recent one. So there is this sense of uh, almost early stage entrepreneurship, I would say. Uh, in terms of going after new markets, going after products that, you know, legacy mindset would not have approved of or not have seen synergies in necessarily. So I think it's the, it's again the early stage entrepreneur mindset that sometimes is required, uh, you know, even at large corporates to, to ensure that uh, the spark of innovation remains alive, uh, that you're able to retain your best people, your most uh, innovative people. Uh, and, and that, you know, comes down to many tactical things like incentive design, for example, uh, you know, uh, bonus versus fixed um, compensation, uh, or even how how fast can somebody rise in the system if they show outlier performance. Um, so I think, in, you know, all organizations or the success of all organizations comes down to incentive design. And I think you need, um, you know, a leader who understands that, appreciates that, and, and builds uh, organizational structures and incentives around it to ensure that the company keeps innovating uh, despite whatever scale it has gotten to. Shubhi, you use the word bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Why does it at all build up? Why? I mean, we have replete examples of what bureaucracy has done to organizations, mm-hmm. how it has pulled them down, and then how they start noticing it again and reinventing about it. But why, why in the first place can one not be so cognizant that it just doesn't come in the way? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> if we yeah. figured that out, uh, yeah. maybe, maybe uh, we would have seen uh, just more companies do exceedingly well. And maybe, maybe Amazon is an example where, you know, they've just gone from strength to strength over so many years. Right. I think it also comes down to just the founder's grit or, or, or how much fuel does he have in him, uh, you know, once the company has gotten to a reasonable scale, because the early stage journey itself is very, very tiring and very, very mentally draining. And, and sometimes, you know, after putting yourself through that uh, emotional and physical turmoil for, for many, many years at a stretch, uh, I think it's easy to let go a little bit 
um, which is also good because in some sense you uh, you know some of those founders end up enabling other leaders to uh, drive the company forward we've seen that at google um, you know new leadership took control and sometimes that works out sometimes that doesn't so i think it eventually comes down to the the talent that you're able to attract to your company and and the talent that you're able to retain um and and whether you have the right filters uh, while while recruiting for those positions so i yeah. think uh, uh, it it all comes down to building out that team in a way that can support uh, that early stage mindset yes i think uh, also if i can i can just pitch in a little bit of uh, my take here yeah uh, i yeah. think it's quite important uh, to take pauses yeah and and uh, i i often say that it is important that you don't make the corporate into a corporate <laughs> <laughs> so for so taking pauses don't you think to create an organization which mm-hmm. has a lot of spirit and not so much of bureaucracy don't mm-hmm. you think that leadership over there has a very strong responsibility to engage in a lot of one to one conversations yeah absolutely in fact uh, you know leadership coaching uh, is, is a very important part of of all this as well uh, because of course one person can't scale and and to make sure that you're always creating the next batch of leaders the next cohort of leaders uh, it's important to to have a, a culture that supports uh, leadership development and coaching uh, you know as folks reach uh, reach mid management level um and that's again something we've not seen very often in india i think it's beginning to uh, start uh, happening in the us we have a portfolio company called better up actually which uh, works on solving exactly this problem with within large enterprises um so so absolutely agree one on ones and and empowering your leaders to to become the leaders of tomorrow is very very important so you right about yourself as a part coach part therapist mm-hmm. and uh, your own effort in your own entrepreneurial journey how has that come handy to you how has that come of use to you in your investing career sure so uh, i get asked this a lot and i yeah. i have a standard and crystal clear answer to this i think uh, you know since i uh, have also been an investor before my entrepreneurial stint i can very easily contrast and compare i think yes um a i think i looked for too much perfection earlier it's always easy to spot nits and flaws in an early stage company um and and hence not be excited about an investment uh, and i think now what i realize having both worked at an early stage startup as well as run my own is that it is never going to be pretty uh, you know the first few years are all about messiness and chaos and imperfection uh, and investing is really about identifying a few reasons that this could work and become really large and if there's even a 10% chance of that hap- of that happening um, that is a great investment so i think just this um, i i think there was more of a theoretical lens of what to look for that i, I would apply before uh and today i just feel like there is a lot more understanding and appreciation of what early stage looks like uh and and so focusing on the right things versus focusing on everything i would say has been one big learning um the other i would say is just empathy so given the person i am uh, you know i think i always had the highest respect for founders um but i feel like i can connect with with them at a more personal at a much deeper personal level today than i could 5 years ago um having seen some of that myself right um right. And, and it's very easy for example to um as somebody on the outside to think about just the high level strategic stuff uh but when you're running a company you know on on a daily basis what takes up 50% of your mind share is just very very trivial tactical things uh and you don't always have answers to those you don't always have uh you know enough data to make a logical decisions and just being able to uh, you know take fast decisions in the face of non conclusive evidence is 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 such a great skill that i don't think i appreciated before but now i do uh so i think empathy and and just um my comfort with imperfection are two things that have uh, very very meaningfully changed in the last 5 years should be interesting that you talk about empathy 
Mm-hmm. And today, I think, you know, we have a lot of very good substantive webinars going on from the London Business Schools and Harvard's and mm-hmm. uh, all of them uh, in some way or the other also talk about empathy. Why do we still need to talk about it? What do you think has really happened in our complete ecosystem, the way we have grown up? Why does this need to be reminded? I mean, if you look at it at at a deeper level, it is something which should come naturally. Yeah. Yes. And we all need reminders for this. We all need, need case studies to understand this. Why do you think that is there? And how could we start making a dent to solve this? Maybe not in our lifetime, but for the future generation. Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, And I I think all of these questions, again, come down to incentive design. So as a society, have we been incentivized uh, to be empathetic? Mm -hmm. And if I just think about, you know, my childhood and growing up in Ahmedabad, Mm -hmm. um, I felt like a lot of our parents and the families we came from were were more middle-class service employees, for example. Yeah, uh, and and more doers, right? Versus necessarily folks in very influential positions, where you start realizing the value of empathy a lot more and a lot early in life. Right. Uh, and so I think uh, when we were growing up, what was important was just the more hard skills, right? How good are you at math? And right. how good are you at science and English <laughs> to some extent? But that was all again super quantitative, and the way we were always measured and what we were incentivized to do was always around these hard skills versus trying to become a more wholesome individual because nobody really knew how how important that is. And I would say, you know, as as we grew older, a lot older, and our parents grew older and came uh, to these positions of leadership in their respective organizations, is when they started. Um, you know, being a lot more aware of how important it is. And by that time, I think some of us had already gotten into, you know, the workforce <laughs> and started realizing uh, uh, that this is important. So I think a lot of it just comes down to, you know, what is being measured, uh, you know, and what are you being, uh, uh, being rated on? And so, um, like, I think the closest thing we had to empathy in school was a moral science uh, class, you know, for half an hour, once a week. Right. Uh, so, so I don't think it was celebrated, at least when I was young. I don't know how the schooling system has changed now. But even I would say teamwork and collaboration uh, were, not, were not attributes that, uh, that we learned growing up as much. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very interesting perspective uh, about the incentivization which you spoke. But uh, Shui, I think even if we look at the schooling system today mm-hmm. and some of the good private schools also yeah uh, most of them most of them not some of them i think it's just still the same probably the mm-hmm. moral science class has also disappeared now <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's just the same and and nothing has been done i i want to ask you something related over here mm-hmm. so while while we talked about empathy and and uh, how it has been not part of a formal curriculum for us in school what yeah. about self-esteem? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you also say that the biggest barriers which uh, founders face are internal. Yeah. Um, and, and those initial years are very messy and chaotic. And that is where a lot of grit is required. Yeah. So, so how do you all connect all this in your uh, experience in working with founders with the subject of self-esteem? You know, I think, uh, and I'm just going to uh, uh, blanket blame, uh, you know, our families and our uh, early managers in in, uh, the workforce for for this. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I feel like we we always were in a setup. I think India is generally a very hierarchical operating model, right? And and what that means is... uh, and I remember even my JE coaching days and my professors, the way they would motivate us is by telling us that nothing is going to happen in our lives and we'll, we'll all be losers forever. So there is this attitude of, you know, constantly beating somebody down uh, and, uh, you know, crushing their spirit. And I, I think the somehow the narrative is that this is what um, will will make for resilient and empowered individuals. I don't understand how, but but I've seen that, you know, a lot of, us grew up with with that uh, notion that you're not perfect. Oh, you have, you know, great marks in ABC, but why is this 
so low you know always focusing on um on what your weaknesses are versus amplifying your strengths which is actually something i've gotten um a concept that I've, i've become more aware of as i've worked in some of these more american organizations where it's all about amplifying strengths versus trying to be a complete uh, you know above average on on 10 things um and i feel like that is also one reason why americans are so culturally confident and indians are so culturally underconfident uh because we've always been told right what what we're not good at and even when it comes to startups uh and i saw this difference for the first time when i visited the valley a few years ago uh if i would discuss an idea with someone in the bay area i you know the conversation would be so uh, constructive and productive uh, in the sense that we would almost build the idea together uh and almost uh, you know going back to the point i earlier made around many things there are many risks we get that right but are there one two three reasons why this could be really big and so the conversation would always center around what if this works and and so uh, the kind of generosity and uh, this abundance mindset i saw there around connecting you with uh, you know folks who could help you make this happen connecting you with providers of capital who could make this happen mm-hmm. uh, sharing you know all the knowledge and resources you have i think that that's so great because that's what leads to a positive sound society uh whereas uh, you know in india when you discuss a startup idea with anybody in your family in your friend circle the first thing you hear is are par isme ye problem hai you know it's it's always about picking on the flaws uh or the risks versus uh gunning for the upside and i don't blame us necessarily because i feel it's also a function of you know our socio economic condition growing up we uh we don't have a lot of risk appetite because uh just getting to a place of stable income was was so hard 30 years ago 50 years ago um so i get where folks come from but i feel uh, that's what led to uh, you know a generation of students and i would say indians are and maybe maybe all humans are so i don't know but i think all of us are equally bright if not brighter than than other uh, countries in the world but we have maybe a tenth of the confidence that i've seen uh, you know certain geographies do and i think uh, that the biggest barrier is indeed internal because when we don't dream big we don't uh, work towards it we don't shoot for it and and so you know where we get to is uh, is, is always compromise uh, versus what we are capable of getting to very interesting shuvi i think uh, what you brought about that uh, the the socio economic condition in the 30 last 30 or 50 years and how that has led to this but i think it's equally time to become more and more aware about it uh and yeah. start changing yeah it's something uh similar after world war 2 this psychology took a completely negative approach yeah <laughs> until Mark seligman came and uh, started talking about positive psychology yeah yeah right. i i think it certainly happened in many families probably is still happening comparisons comparisons of children mm. their siblings or friends and i think it happens in a lot of organizations also yeah yeah um uh, what do you think about that i mean as an investor do you take uh, note of this do you try to make corrections beforehand do you think this is going to happen somewhere and you take some preemptive action that's an interesting question because i have some conflicting thoughts on it i feel that as a society uh, you know uh, no matter how much we love the idea of decentralization some some level of structure is required to maintain order right uh, and and there will always be some uh, hierarchy for lack of a better word uh, and so society will always you know stack rank people and stack rank jobs and and what not right and today money seems to be one um, barometer of success uh, you know and and you can like it or dislike it but it seems to be one that is well accepted among among most people um so i think that's not something we can run away from or avoid that's just a uh, reality um but but i feel on an individual level the more we can liberate ourselves of that comparison the more uh, free we get to attain our full potential uh, because and i read this uh, distinction somewhere around attribute based thinking versus context based thinking mm-hmm. um and and if we if i'm comparing myself to someone on one attribute uh, i might be you know higher or lower but it's such a tiny piece of you know the entire uh, 
uh, existence of that individual that by in itself is not uh, a very meaningful comparison the question to sometimes ask is would i trade my entire life <laughs> with the <laughs> with the entire life of that individual and once uh, you know folks start thinking about it like that i think uh, is when you know people will will start realizing how lucky they are to be where they are uh, you know so i think being more uh, holistic uh, and 360 in your uh, in your thinking or comparison if at all you do that is actually lets um, helps you realize that you're in a good place already i think that's one and b just i think beyond a point comparison is is useless it's entirely useless i think sometimes it helps you in the beginning when you're younger because that gives you a goal to chase so i don't think comparison is entirely useless um but if it is coming at the cost of your self esteem and self worth that that's absolutely detrimental and uh, uh, you know that's something to be aware of and and keep that in check um but and as you grow older i've seen a lot of people just orient more inwards um and so i think that naturally does disappear where wherein your only competition is in some sense the you of yesterday and you want to be better and better at whatever it is that you've decided to specialize in um so i feel uh, you know we can't avoid it uh, but it's it's best to remember that that life is a single player game and yeah. uh, and you just you just have to do what what you want to do yeah picking from your uh... life is a single player game i i read this pretty recently uh, and it's it's from adler psychology mm-hmm. which says that if you're not living for yourself then whom are you living for because there is no one else who's living for you yeah yeah and and uh, i think it's very important therefore to again come back to where we started the conversation that what's the purpose and yeah. where, what are we here for both at an individual level and at the organizational level yeah also issue having a reasonably long exposure with, with the valley and in america uh and you work for also an organization which has roots in america mm-hmm. um how important is the fact that children in the western countries uh go on after i think 16 or 18 years they are on their own mm mm-hmm. and they learn that value of independence as well as financial responsibility yeah and i i i don't think india has many cases of that maybe we could count them on the fingers if they are yeah so how much does this make a difference in our uh, founders entrepreneurs in the confidence which we spoke about uh yeah no that's something i've also spent time thinking about especially as i you know looked at some of my cousins uh who grew up uh, in california and how they think when they're 18 versus how i used to think when i was 18 right uh, and i think it's not just about financial independence it's also about um just the kind of things they do even even when they are in high school right organizing fests and uh working through summers to earn pocket money uh you know as a tutor or as a you know swimming instructor or or uh, anything but that that level of being treated as an independent individual with independent decision making uh and who's responsible for their uh, for their actions um i think that just is, is something that's ingrained in them a lot earlier than for us i think we are still babies still you know we we uh, graduate out of uh, <laughs> undergrad and it's at 22 or 23 is when we you know uh, hit the real world for the first time and and that's when you know some of our learning and and maturing begins whereas um, for them it starts very early even on the point of empathy right i yeah. i feel we build empathy when we are in sales type roles uh when we have to influence people and so even working as a barista for example helps you build empathy in a very different manner uh versus you know spending your summers just doing projects or you know chess uh, uh skill building competitions or something like that which we typically do in india um and so i feel just being out there uh, by yourself is definitely helps you ramp up on some of those uh, you know adulthood skills a lot earlier in life than than we do um and that that impacts us uh, i think uh, you know to your point uh, very much because a lot of us even end up leaning on our families for very very long right well into our 30s and 40s um 
and what that means is sometimes there is nobody to show us a mirror uh, you know for for all our flaws and i think that also leads to a, a lower self awareness level uh, on average versus um, someone who's you know just just been out there more and been by himself more and i would say um, you know even though this is how i'm describing indian uh, indian culture and indian society there are always a few of us who've um broken out earlier on in life uh, by accident or by design and uh, and the kind of maturity or or, or uh, ramp on uh, self awareness and empathy you see among those individuals is definitely different indeed absolutely right now should we let's let's come back to the question of internal barriers mm-hmm. and if you could share some instances of founders who have had these barriers what were those barriers and uh, how did they overcome them how were you instrumental in helping them come over those internal barriers sure one one very common example here is uh, you know founders saas founders or enterprise software founders who um, have been selling in india growing well Uh, and and suddenly one day they uh, get pinged by an american company or or you know they they suddenly realize that the american market could be a lot larger uh, but there's always this fear of um, you know can i enter a new market uh, you know will i will i be able to network the same way that i could in india will i be able to sell will i be able to compete against global talent so there's a lot of this internal censorship that happens uh, before you even tried doing this or shooting your shot and i think that's where the surrounding ecosystem of investors coaches family friends can be really helpful in in pushing them and and telling them that the size of the prize if this works is so great that it is definitely worth the effort and don't under undercut or discount yourself before you even try i think that's one very common example um, you know folks folks just being very um skeptical of their own abilities to sell in a different market even though that market could be a lot larger in some instances uh i would say that's one um even very simple things like uh, you know sometimes founders get worried about not being able to attract the best talent in india so for example i i need a coo for my offline grocery company uh, i'm just making this up um and instead of reaching out to the top 5 people in india because i already believe that they will never want to work with me i uh, automatically you know start looking for uh, you know tier 2 uh, candidates just folks with for example lesser experience or folks who've not worked that scale uh, because it i think it will be easier for me to attract them to work uh, with me versus attracting somebody who's been at some of the best or most scaled organizations in india Uh, that's another example of where we sometimes don't even try uh, to to get what's best for us so i feel uh, there are there are enough instances where we define our own limitations versus letting the market define it for us right so in the end they boil down to self limiting belief yeah yeah absolutely okay and should we like hiring and uh, hiring the best talent and mm-hmm. i think every organization speaks about it and every organization or every leader speaks that you know we have to work with people who are smarter than us mm-hmm. and if we all work with people who are smarter than us that there are just not enough people around yeah right and how how do you think this challenge can be overcome and particularly when you look at tier 2 tier 3 cities mm-hmm. it's generally not possible to have people smarter than you around you mm mm-hmm. now you have to maintain the balance of leadership you cannot get arrogant about what you are as yeah. a leader yeah at the same time you have to do well with the talent which is available to you and there are examples of such organizations and companies who have done very well even with not having people smarter than the leader around them yeah. or yeah. not hiring the best talent so what according to you does this leadership or leadership style have different and what is there to learn from such leaders yeah that's very interesting and uh, you know zoho comes to mind as uh, a company that got built in a city that uh, you know did not have a lot of engineers when they got started mm-hmm. and uh, the founder literally 
trained so many people uh, over many many years and now he you know of course it's one of the most successful companies out of india um and i feel you know in this specific context where uh, you know folks around you might not have had the exposure uh, mm. that you might have had having traveled or or worked with more scale organizations um i think your responsibility as a leader is then to identify folks who could grow into into those personas and groom them uh, exactly in in the way that you have been groomed because somebody took a chance on you as well many years ago and, and so yeah. you in some sense also paid forward yeah so i think you know it it comes to the fact that leadership is such a big responsibility yeah and it just uh, it's kind of it doesn't cease yeah yeah so should we once you go ahead and invest in a mm-hmm. in a startup in a in a budding business what generally comes in the way of entrepreneurs after that what are the biggest derailers the most common derailer funnily is actually just talent there are trade offs right uh, waiting for the right person also means that you will be slower uh, in the near term Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, sometimes we see uh, founders and i i made some of those same mistakes myself but sometimes we want to just go ahead with whoever is available versus uh, you know waiting out uh, for the right person um and and what that means is you know if you've gotten 80% people and then they hire more 80% people uh, you know very quickly or at an organization with with a lot of 20% people and that essentially means that you are not going to reach your potential or what you could have been uh, had you just had the patience to wait out and hire the right kind of people now it's a trade off right so i'm not saying that one can afford to wait you know many many months in all contexts and all times but i think this orientation towards just hiring the best people possible for at least your early team is just so important and so critical right and this is level 1 and i would say level 2 is once you hire those people don't frustrate them right <laughs> don't uh, don't try to micromanage or uh, uh, you know enable them and give them autonomy and let them run and i think as as the founder uh, or the ceo your job is to be an enabler not the ultimate decision maker for everything right so i think when people uh, try to hold power to themselves uh, versus enabling uh, you know a larger group of leaders is is the other uh, failure mode that sometimes happens because uh, again your best talent will leave and then you will be an organization of you know uh, half motivated people and 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 that's typically what uh, spells doom for a lot of companies when you say that try to get the best talent mm-hmm. here what does talent encompass for you because mm-hmm. uh, we also spoke a lot about empathy and self awareness yeah yes as an investor what all the talent encompass for you i think for different roles uh, again the answer would be a little bit different um but i would say for for any role that requires strategic thinking um i would say high learning agility mm-hmm. um being curious being hustly uh, being able to attract good people to work with them um are are some of the things that are common traits among high performing leaders in the industry yes and i'm going to go back to to the fact where we spoke about how it is important very important for leaders to have a lot of one to one interactions mm-hmm. and and it just struck me that when we talk about hiring the best people and we always cannot do that yeah doesn't this one to one interaction become even much more important in those cases it does because that that is a part of uh, you know almost educating or or grooming those those individuals and those one on one interactions are the foundation for that yes Absolutely. yeah i have this uh, line which says transactional investment is physics and emotional investment is chemistry moving on how does covid change what you do the way you have looked at founders ideas businesses and the way you will look at them now 
I guess, you know, I can break it into two parts. One is just the practical aspects of, of venture investing. Um, of course, in the in the past, you know, before before 2020 hit us, mm-hmm. uh, it was so much more in-person. And so the kind of relationships you could build in the industry with founders or non-founders were, were different because it's always, uh, uh, you know, more authentic, a more um, open conversation you end up having in person. Uh, and so when uh, the lockdown began, I guess that's when uh, I was a little bit uh, worried around how the relationship building part of our job is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess as as it settled down um, and, and it was clearer that it's going to be many months before this goes away, um, at least for me, the, the change has just been making peace with this reality and knowing that uh, everything is going to happen over Zoom, whether that's deals, whether that's, uh, you know, partnerships in the industry or, or relationships with uh, uh, folks in the ecosystem. It's all going to happen on Zoom and just make your peace with it. Uh, and I think that's how most of the industry has reacted now uh, because business, our business is not going to shut for, for so many months. Um, and uh, again, you know, first few weeks post-COVID, nobody really knew how long this is going to last. Uh, and so there was some... I think immediate focus on portfolios and helping them, uh, helping those companies figure out what is required uh, to be done given the given the change in circumstances. But a couple of weeks in, I think everyone had gotten to a place where they were they were good to go, and so it was like, okay, what do we do now? Um, can't can't just shut shop, and so. So business resumed on Zoom. So not much has changed in terms of how we conduct the business. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, spaces, uh, I would say there are, you know, education, tech, gaming, uh, a bunch of companies saw very interesting uptake uh, post-COVID because people were just home more, had more free time and fewer alternatives. Um, and, you know, so summer vacations plus COVID uh, together uh, led to this big uptick in certain spaces. The question for us as investors also is how much of this sustains or sticks post-COVID? Uh, mm. Because if some of this is just a short-term lift, then that's not something that necessarily gives you those large outcomes in many years once this is gone. Um, and so um, I think as, as we look at uh, companies and we evaluate deals, uh, the idea is to also figure out a way to isolate the COVID impact from, uh, you know, the intrinsic product market fit of a company. Yes. Uh, should we, these COVID months, the last mm-hmm. three months, have they given you any kind of learning on the innateness of grit and character within founders yeah i think most founders uh, by definition it's a it's a self selected group of more gritty people okay <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and i think but i do think that folks who have been able to thrive uh, in this, this situation are the ones who have adapted uh, to this very quickly so no matter what they were doing in the world pre covid uh, how did they uh, add product lines for example that uh, that were more relevant in a post-lockdown world. Uh, and, and the few companies that have managed to make that shift very, very quickly are, uh, I think, the ones that will thrive and survive in the long run. Uh, because COVID is just one of many market dislocations that keep happening, right? I remember a few years ago, it was demonetization. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, so, so, so these things keep happening. Geo entered India and, and there was a massive influx of uh, of customers of users uh, in the tier three tier four markets and i think uh, companies that can quickly realize this new reality and make the most of it uh, are the ones that uh, end up uh, end up doing well in the long run great now i also feel uplifted talking to you <laughs> <laughs> should we how do you stay ahead of the curve what's your own way of getting getting to light speed how do you stay ahead of the curve? Um, I mean, founders do have choices and you work in quite a competitive scenario. Yeah. And you want the best ones to be with you. You want to track them early on. Yeah. How do you stay ahead of the curve? Personally, I felt, uh, you know, building a, a, a non-transactional relationship with founders or just, just interesting people in the ecosystem uh, has been my way of operating and and that's not just because I think that it will give me a leg up 
you know when there is a formal fundraise uh, but also because i genuinely enjoy uh, you know these conversations i enjoy meeting interesting founders who who are chasing purpose uh, and are doing something which i would say in the indian context is quite bold and quite requires a lot of guts and a lot of grit uh, you know you most families are not supportive and uh, you know getting money from the indian customer is hard so so doing it in the indian context i would say requires a lot of courage um, and and i have a lot of respect for for these founders already and i think that's what makes me uh, you know invest in these relationships even before there is a professional angle to it necessarily so i think that that also resonates with more people when when they realize that you know not everything is is being done with a near term agenda because that also sets you apart from folks uh, who are a little more transactional so that would be one um and then i would say you know broadly uh, game recognizes game or or people end up gravitating towards people whose values are more similar to theirs um and so for me it has meant just being very aware of my values and acting in alignment with those values right uh, in some sense holding myself to that high standard of authenticity um of uh, of just giving my best in whatever context i might be uh, and and i can say that there is some privilege also that comes with uh, being in this job or having been at the right place in the right time to have gotten here uh, and so i feel like it's almost my moral obligation to pay it forward right um, and and again going back to uh, what i loved about the valley the fact that people were so generous with their time with their resources knowledge connections my goal is to bring that same culture to india and um i try to uh, live it by by doing the same things that other people have done for me in the past nice that's that's how the butterfly effect keeps working <laughs> <laughs> and and i think you you spoke two very important words with this uh, uh, authenticity and uh, the the relationship orientation yeah. without an agenda yeah yeah what is leadership to you personally what do you look for in leaders what is that trait of leadership you would like to see in every founder or in every ceo so if i just reflect on all the leaders i've worked with and and the ones that have done exceedingly well i think the one common trait is that these folks can bring out the best in people around them uh and i think that's so core to being a leader again going back to some of the conversation we had in the last hour one person does not scale and so you have to empower and enable a whole team a whole group of people to do their best work uh and so a leader by definition is somebody who can inspire motivate bring out the best in in people uh i think a lot of us when especially when we are younger we don't even know what we are good at and so for uh, the best leaders actually spot that and amplify that and help you become really really good at what comes naturally to you so i think bringing out the best in people is one uh, very very is probably the most important trait uh, among leaders yes and i think uh, i i gravitate again towards the fact that bringing out the best uh, the the effect which one to one interactions which a leader does could have whether or not he has the best people around him yeah yeah i i think there's a lot of uh, commonality in in what you spoke with uh, what i just mentioned yeah yeah so if you were to be influential today to decide that okay uh 20 years from now we have to have a society where we don't need to talk about empathy but it is a part of us where we don't need to mm-hmm. talk about awareness but it is a part of us Mm-hmm. what are the few changes you would like to bring and we are talking about our country we are talking about yeah. india you are saying how do we get to a place where empathy is ingrained in every individual exactly empathy self esteem awareness uh i do personally feel that some of this is also i mean we can't break away from maslow's law, law of hierarchy so uh somebody who uh doesn't have uh, security around around food or just basic financial security uh, i can't ask them to meditate and uh, you know develop self awareness because that's just not a priority got it um, 
so there is that but for the people who have accomplished some of those levels um and are in a place where they now have choices um i think and this is a, a personal opinion i haven't uh, pressure tested it a lot yet but i i wonder if self awareness is is core to empathy because when you understand yourself fully you can actually and accept yourself fully is when you can actually understand and accept other people as well because people fundamentally are not very different from each other um and and self awareness for me uh, you know has come from um multiple things i would say uh, i can keep you know going back uh, it's a bunch of books i've read it's uh, from meditating very regularly over the last 5 years uh, and and why i got started uh, you know with all that was was going through some professional setbacks that made me uh, you know just underconfident and not very motivated about life in general and i feel like some of those challenges when you face them and when you break apart some of your first principles um is when you you get a chance to recreate your first principles right um and uh, i i have this conversation with with many parents today where they're like how do i make my child how do i build character in my child and i'm like you have to just let them go through suffering because that is what builds character and you know as parents you want to protect your children but but i think there is so much more growth that happens when you when you fail um so a country that is uh, you know that or or a set of parents that let their children fail uh, is is important to building character and building self awareness uh, which i think is important to building empathy um, more tactically i would say uh, again borrowing from what i've seen uh, happen in the west but just letting your kids be out in the uh, out in the real world by themselves sooner uh whether it's in the form of uh, you know internships you do when you're younger um or just you know sort of enabling them to to start their small businesses online or or offline uh can help them uh, build some of these people skills that are so crucial for success later on in life and empathy of course is probably the most important one of them all um but i think being less protective of our children can actually set them up for for longer term success i think you drill down on two important things one is what is the relationship of the individual with himself yeah and and a, a lot of that comes from knowing yourself through self awareness yeah. yeah and i think the second part which you spoke about is also very interesting about the children about the kids and mm-hmm. i want to tell you uh, i was having a recent conversation with a very senior corporate leader Mm-hmm. and uh, we were just chatting and and he was just asking that what do your kids do and stuff and uh, and how have you raised up your kids so i said you know i think we were just lucky to get out of their way quite early on <laughs> <laughs> and i think that that really you know helps in uh, building self esteem and yeah. and this has to be taken in the right spirit of course what i say yeah. but i think that really helps a child to build himself up yeah yeah and he'll also fall right and i of think course. that's also just very core and very important to his personal growth yeah your life and experience uh, so far and and you have a very long career and life ahead of you <laughs> how much of it so far is a coincidence and how much of it is by design yeah this uh, i really like this question because i have a theory on this and maybe it's not mine i'm sure uh, many folks might have written about it in the past but i've seen this in investing i've seen this in poker i've seen this with uh, content creators in fact okay um, that it's it's really um, uh, so there is this concept of reversion to the mean right so you there will be instances where you get lucky and there will be instances where you get unlucky um, and and everyone has a fairly similar share of uh lucky and unlucky opportunities in life um and it's really about the ones who who accomplish the most are the ones who end up making the most of those few lucky instances that they have uh and uh, a very uh, simple example or a very quantitative example here is if you look at venture capital math the highest performing funds with the highest inter, you know rates of return are the are not ones who've gotten more companies right but they just earned a lot more on the companies that did well so and, and similarly with poker you will get bad cards you will get good cards 
um but it's really about how much you make in the good cards that you have so uh, you know very simple example if i don't bet enough when i have a good hand i stand to make just you know uh, 100 200 bucks wherein if i play more boldly with a good hand i stand to make maybe 10x 10x of that right again depending on what the stakes are etc etc but just trying to give a very simplified example of how i think life inevitably pay, plays out wherein you get lucky and you get unlucky but if you make the most out of the instances where you do get lucky um i think uh, th- that's what really uh, changes your trajectory as an individual and personally i feel you learn something from all your experiences whether you enjoyed them or not um but i would say uh, joining lightspeed uh, early enough in my career was one such opportunity where i felt uh, It just happened out of nowhere. I I didn't understand the VC world too much. Super serendipitous. A recruiter reached out. I just met the team, liked the team, joined them. Uh, but in retrospect, I feel like that just opened my mind to to so much. Uh, before that, work was always something that one has to do in order to earn the weekend. You know, a very standard way of thinking. But at Lightspeed, at in venture capital, I realized that it's possible to enjoy your work so much that you don't think about a work-life balance at all. um and and i also realized that uh, the folks who are at the top of their industries are actually ones who for whom work is life uh, and i don't want to say it in a way that sounds unsustainable i, I think when folks talk about work life balance it's often because work drains them and life energizes them but if you can be in a place where your work energizes you then you stop thinking about what is work time versus non work time and so uh, just realizing that there is a role out there which i can enjoy so much um and be good at was was entirely uh, fortuitous i had no role in orchestrating that or making it happen uh, but after i joined the fact that i did work very hard that i did you know put my heart and soul into into uh, doing the best i could uh ended up setting me for more interesting avenues later on in life and so uh, i feel it's really about playing your hand well when you get a good hand uh, and you won't always get a good hand um, but but the ones that you do i think the most that you can make of it uh, ends up uh, playing a big role in where you end up in life fantastic i think uh, if i would if i were to draw from what you said mm-hmm. i think one was what is the dialogue you are having with yourself when you are in a spot yeah and uh, the second thing was always keep stirring the pot yeah yeah <laughs> don't stop at that and i yeah. think one of the very important thing you said work is life and and i'm reminded so many times of uh, mahatma gandhi's uh, quote mm-hmm. where he said that life is one indivisible whole you cannot compartmentalize it yeah yeah you know i'm very much inspired by that and one small bit from myself you talked about enjoying and my own spelling of enjoying is i n j o y yeah great thanks so much that was wonderful uh for the listeners of this podcast what would be some of your favorite reads or shows which you think from your point of view just everyone who's coming out into the world to play should be reading should be looking at should at least be glancing through so i don't watch a lot of tv um, but i do have some book recommendations sure and uh, maybe i'll split them into more business and and psychology related books and just self awareness related books because i think I, both of those are sorry yeah. go on uh, no i just got to interrupt you here because i missed one thing and i i okay. did notice that you have done so many different things on neural networks yeah and you just spoke about psychology so uh, before you get on the books please do reflect a little bit for us on your interest for neural networks and why yeah. why um i think i've always been very interested in how the brain works uh and you know the whole promise of ai was to create a self learning machine like the brain is uh and and that's what you know attracted me towards knowing more and learning more and i remember it was 3 years ago when andrew ng came out with this uh, specialization deep learning.ai and those five courses that you've likely seen are all his courses um and and i was so excited uh, to do them all because 
um, in learning how to recreate the brain or to recreate a learning mechanism for computers, you also understand how our own brain works. Um, so that to me was an interesting angle uh, to, to understand uh -huh. just how my own psychology or my own brain works. Right. It's, um, I don't know if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, but it's about type one, type two thinking. Um, uh -huh. Essentially, there is one logical part of the brain and one more instinctive part of the brain. And so some, some decisions you take are super logical and some decisions are just more instinctive. Um, you know, does this business model make sense? Perhaps it's more logical. And do you like this person is a little more instinctive sometimes. And, and people try to be logical about everything and people try to be instinctive about everything. But one, one thing that... Um, I believe, and I'm sure again, many folks before me would have uh, written about it, is that um, you you can get to uh, an instinctive decision-making framework even for the more logical decisions once you've seen enough. I think most people judge people instinctively and not logically because they've seen, you know, uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people by the time they're 30 in life. Um, and, and that's just something that so much data on, but in terms of business models, they may be evaluated only, you know, a hundred. And so you just don't have as much data, uh, which I compare to, you know, how machines work, uh, you know, there's rule-based decision-making, which is more algorithmic, uh, wherein you uh, say, Achha, this parameter should be X and this parameter should be Y or whatever. And, and that's how you take a decision versus neural networks are about feeding so much data, uh, that. Uh, I, I, that eventually you don't even know how much weightage is being given to the different parameters, but all you know is the decision, which is also what people sometimes uh, dislike about AI, that decision-making is such a black box. You don't really know why uh, the computer is, or the machine is coming up with this answer, which is similar to how instinctive decision-making works for us in our own heads. So sorry for the digression. No, but, that was fine. And actually that's a very fine perspective you gave. Thank you. Awesome. So shall I move on to yes. the books? Yes. Okay. Um, so I guess on just psychology, um, maybe I'll just mix them all up and I have, uh, I'll have like 10 recommendations. I think anyone who wants to uh, do early stage tech or venture, you should absolutely read zero to one. You should read uh, Outliers. Uh, founders at work. This is actually by Jessica Livingston. Um, she's one of the co-founders of YC and, and this book tracks the early journeys of many companies that are wildly successful today. Um, there is influence, which I think uh, is, is, very in, is a very interesting read, again, from a psychology and uh, social skills uh, point of view. Uh, there is give and take which is by Adam Grant. Again, um, he's, he's uh, written a lot on this subject, but uh, going back to our earlier conversation on non-transactional relationships, um, his interesting point was um, if you map out all the successful people, um, most people would expect that uh, a majority would be takers in life. So people who've um, gained more from other people than given to other people, but it's actually givers. Uh, so give and take is a very interesting one. And then... Uh, I have really liked uh, why Buddhism is true. This sounds like a religious book, but it's not. It's really about how uh, our own psychology works. And uh, it just uses Buddhist principles to drive some of those things uh, down. There is, uh, there is Elephant in the Brain, which is uh, almost entirely about, uh, again, my psychology and self-awareness. Um, there's Siddhartha, which I really like. It's about, it's a very short, simple yes. read of someone's journey uh, of self-discovery and, and uh, learning some of these important lessons in life. Um, and I would say uh, my last one would be The Courage to be Disliked. Um, it actually is, you, you mentioned Adler earlier in the conversation and the book actually explores uh, the the similarities and contrasts between two great psychologists of their time, Adler and Freud. Right. How Freud would say everything a person does uh, is derived from his past. And Adler uh, was of the opposite opinion that everything a person does is uh, derived from his vision of the future. And so the whole book is essentially a conversation between two people who come from these two different schools of thought and how they sort of, uh, you know, uh, try to argue about what philosophy makes more sense. Yes, I think that's a, absolutely a phenomenal book to read. Oh, you have read it. Sorry. I, 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 no, no, no. Every time I hear someone speak 
speak about it, I'm excited because there's a different way in which they say the same thing. And, and that's, that's fantastic <laughs> to hear. <laughs> Great. If you had a possibility to go back into your life, maybe at 18 years or something, what would that be that you would want to say to yourself or do differently? And, and this is the message from you, which I would like to take as a conclusion of this podcast to all the listeners. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, one, I, I would say build your own conviction. Uh, you know, nobody really knows any better. Uh, is it, something I've realized in life. Everyone's winging it in some sense. And so don't take somebody else's word for it. Just because all your friends are chasing something doesn't make it cool or interesting or, or the right answer for you. Um, so all advice, for instance, is, is, is individual, is personal to the individual giving it and might not necessarily fit in your context. So, so listen to a lot of people, definitely diversify the number of people you get uh, inputs or advice from, but always build your own conviction and take your own decisions. Do not, do not ever rely on other people's opinions on your life. Um, that's one. Uh, the other I would say is, um, just again on the point of internal barriers uh, when you get rid of uh, social structures and hierarchy in your own head the world also treats you differently um, and so so do not ever discount yourself do not ever think that uh, this person might not be interested in talking to me or uh, might not respect me as much i think folks respect you as much as you respect yourself so so uh, you know going back to our point on confidence uh, just just know that you are as an individual are special and this is a single player game and so uh, do not ever underestimate what you're capable of and having said that Shui, uh, i would like to tell all the listeners that they should get on your linkedin and read the blogs which you have posted there and uh, how actually you have done what you said with with some of those uh, people and shared those instances which are very inspiring yeah Great, Shui. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Small Big Wins podcast. It's a real delight to have spoken to you. A very, very big pleasure. Thank you. And I had uh, a very, very interesting time myself. So thank you so much for the engaging conversation. Thank you so much, Shui.